Hello and welcome to Scream Cleaning. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. You're not going to do like a creepy kooky, like I'm <laughs> from Jeff Simpson. I no, don't have a punny name. No, no That's pun what the, today. the Simpsons would just do, the, right? Just the creepy voice will suffice. Okay. Welcome to Scream Cleaning. A very ah! Thank you. Every time we say it, we got to do it. Uh, a very special episode of the show today in which... We're going to talk about horror movies because it's Halloween. Happy Halloween. Today, as a matter of fact, on the radio, when this show airs, is Halloween the day. And so we can't ignore horror, especially when I'm a part of the team that decides what we're going to talk about every week. And (laughs) I love horror. We're really excited about the show today because if you've been following the show and we urge you to do so, you can look up our past episodes On the Screen Cleaning Podcast. Notice I just said screen cleaning there. You can Google Screen Cleaning Podcast. And look up the episode that talks about do old TV shows hold up? We're going to follow a similar theme today, but we've adapted it for Halloween. And today we're talking do old horror movies hold up over time? And what do we mean by that, Cole, when we say do they hold up? Well, it... it kind of holds two different ways, right? There's the special effects and then there's the acting. And and we're going to go way, way back machine today with it because horror has been around for a hundred years in cinema into the black and white and silent movie days. So we want to kind of look back. Uh, This also helps serve our purposes on screen cleaning because a lot of modern horror is just not appropriate for, I mean, no horror, right, is appropriate, appropriate for kids, but some kids <laughs> like me will get around things and stay up late and watch them on movie marathons around this time of the year. But we really, in good conscience, can't talk about many of the really hard R, blood and guts kind of horror. But when you look back at the older horrors, we want to say, are they still scary despite not having the modern visual effects that we're used to today? Right. So, I mean, there's a lot to take into account that we'll discuss today. Everything from visual and practical effects to the script, to the music, how they employ jump scares, the acting. Or don't employ jump scares, preferably. Yeah. You know, and, you know, well, we'll we'll get into that because I have have different feelings on jump scares. Okay. But it is a staple in the horror genre, to be sure. I think, Cole, I think the best place to start is with one of the earliest horror movies that maybe at one point or another could have been considered more of an impressionistic film than a horror movie. start at the very beginning? I think so. A very good place to start? 1920. You said 100 years ago. 100 years exactly. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari came out, a German expressionist experiment, really, into the visual medium and how we can play with the way the camera works. Okay, so first of all, what is the story of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Well, plot-wise, it's this carnival barker that has a uh, a sleepwalker dude. It, it's kind of a zombie-ish that he can control as he goes about the as a creature of the night to do his evil biddings. Okay. Or does he... The ending puts it all into Interesting. Question. See, this is a scary premise because I think sleepwalkers are scary enough as it is. You know, just imagine you're a parent, you roll over in bed one night and you just happen to see your child hovering over you. <laughs> it's one of the most terrifying things that can happen to a parent in their life. Sure. And uh, 
yeah, to to know that maybe somebody's controlling a sleepwalker makes it even scarier. But what I I have not seen this film in its entirety, I should say, but I've watched enough to see that there is certainly a creepy factor that still holds up after all these years. And the important thing with looking back is a lot of movie makers, a lot of directors even today are nerds, right? They start off the reason they want to make movies is because they love movies. And so they pull from movies that they like. If you have ever seen a Tim Burton movie, I was you just understand the visuals of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Absolutely. The, what, everything I was seeing, I, th- I thought, oh, Tim Burton definitely was influenced by this movie. From the tall, gaunt, pale-faced, and makeup zombie that Johnny Depp seems to always play in the sure. movies to the very bent architecture and lighting. And you, you have to think back, whenever they were making The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, it wasn't lighting per se they literally painted the sets to look like the lighting was very drastic and and in weird bent angles or or pulling your focus into a specific place it it's truly artistic in a way that horror doesn't get credit for anymore but it's one of the vanguards of changing the way we build a set and tell a story on film oh the production design is crazy creepy mm-hmm. as is the makeup so Based on what I've seen and based on a lot of other old horror movies that are just too campy and just not scary by today's standards, I certainly think that this movie holds up. I love that it holds up, and I agree with you. The last thing we mentioned, music and scripting, and and there's not a lot of script right in a silent movie, but the way they present the title cards, I think when people think silent movies, they think that old-timey music and then the the old-timey script font, right? Um, This has very creepy music and very disjointed and fun font with it, too. If you watch it in its original, like, German, the, the font is just crazy and matches the style of all the sets. Someone went in more recently and drew the stylings in English uh, to match that old different font. Absolutely. And before we get any further, Cole, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time talking about how viewer preferences can and do change over time. Right. And what scares us changes over time. That's a lot to what has to do with does our old horror hold up? Are we even scared of these things anymore? And I think I mean, let's just let's look at the let's give it some context or let's let's use an example, Cole. Let's as a kid, you know, it doesn't take much to please you in the way of Halloween candy. Right. You know, (laughs) you'll eat pretty much anything and everything. And, you know, there was a time when a a bag of Skittles or a, a block of mambas may have done it for me. Now I kind of stick mainly with the chocolate, right? And I'm very, I'm much more selective about the types of candies that I will consume. As folks grow up, they learn what they like and they kind of stick to it. Right. But then also there are certain technological advances that have been made over the years. There are certain techniques that have evolved over the years that, you know, have le- have shown us that Maybe chasing a tire down the street as a kid isn't as entertaining as it once was, right? We have video games now, Jeff. Right. So <laughs> We don't need to play stick in a cup or ball in a cup or stick ball. Or... So to say that the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is still creepy today is saying something mm-hmm. because, yeah, things that were creepy back in 1920 aren't always as creepy in 2020. So slightly thereafter, films started tackling the famous creatures of the night. Uh, oh, yeah. Namely, 
but not exactly namely Dracula, because the next horror movie we see that crops up chronologically is Nosferatu, which is basically an adaptation of Dracula. They just couldn't get the rights. And remember, back then it wasn't in the public domain yet because we're talking about the 1920s. It's still kind of a recent popular novel. Uh, But they make this movie that's basically Dracula, and I think it holds up slightly less. So this, I liken this film kind of to the 2017 Houston Astros, right? Because they cheated, they got (laughs) caught, and yet somehow they found their way back into the sport, right? (laughs) That's exactly what you could say about Nosferatu because, yeah, they they were ordered to destroy all the prints. Not all of them were destroyed because, yeah, these things slipped through the cracks. And thankfully now we've, we are able to watch it all these years later. I wish I could say the same thing about the Houston Astros. I, I do not enjoy watching them. Right. But I did enjoy watching them not make the World Series. But that's a different topic for and a different And a certain time. team that the Astros Which famously beat. We'll we'll the, talk the, about later on in the I'm show. I'm sure we will. But what works here for me is something we haven't really touched upon yet. And it's the acting. And again, silent film. So they're relying on their facial expressions. They're relying on their makeup and prosthetics. And this actor, Max Schreck, who portrays Nosferatu, is terrifying. He really is. And they've used some wonderful techniques with lighting that have served them well. I will say, though, outside of his performance, I I don't really find the movie all that creepy. Yeah. Yeah. It's he's an interesting villain and we see this a lot of times in modern horror as well where the creature that they come up with is more interesting than the plot that they put around it, right? For a harder horror, I'm a fan of uh, The Terrifier is a recent one where the clown and the makeup and everything is absolutely terrifying and the way the actor does it is awesome. The movie is in a, just a lame, lame run-of-the-mill horror. Sure. And, yeah, so as far as this movie holding up, maybe not the movie, but certainly the the performance, right? And the character certainly holds on because Dracula becomes very famous. We see many, many iterations oh, yeah. over the years. So now let's fast forward into the universal era of monsters where Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. and these kind of characters start taking on the famous monsters and this is what a lot of people think of when they think monsters right even you know after they were established with the universal monsters we get the 80s and we get monster squad and we get nowadays with the hotel transylvania right where it's still dracula and the blob and frankenstein's monster and the wolfman and it's these same characters all getting together like they did back in the 30s and 40s and 50s with house of dracula sure etc i think there are certain elements of these movies that do still hold up Uh, There is a certain creepiness factor to them, and I can only imagine what it would have been like to be a kid when these movies were coming out and being able to go out and see them or even staying home and, uh, you know, (laughs) once TV came around, being able to stay up late and watch them on TV like you grew up doing, This is what I did. Yes, so it's the Universal Monsters that hold a special place in my heart because this is one of my avenues into the rest of horror and why I love the things that I love. My personal favorite that I will show for any day of the week is the one that has had the most recent remake of it. I think the original Invisible Man from 1933 is the best of the Universal Monsters, and I think it holds up the best. It's 
my favorite because I also think that it holds up the best, and it's because of Claude Rains. Mm. And it's because a lot of this acting has become so stereotypical, so like ingrained in what the monsters are, that it's not particularly scary anymore. But Claude Rains, when he's acting and has like bandages on, kind of falls into that cla- like very stiff, very professional, like 30s kind of acting sure. where he's overacting. But when it's just his voice and you're just zoomed in on an empty chair, assuming the Invisible Man is there, Claude Rains has a heck of a voice and he makes that movie actually scary. Because what our minds can conjure up is typically scarier than what we're seeing on the screen. That's going to come back again and again. I remember the scene when the police are charging into his room and they're de- they want answers and they want to take him in. And he's like, you want to know who I am? I'll show you who I am. And he's mm-hmm. laughing maniacally as he's unwrapping the bandages. And for a 1933 film, those special effects are pretty amazing. And even today I'm thinking, that that doesn't bother me. Like, I'm, I'm not thinking those are terrible graphics. And so I think you're right. I think the performance can really, really carry it and sell a movie the one that holds up the least, I think, is Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman. There's <laughs> even into the 80s when we got kind of good at special effects. You see American Werewolf in London and The Howling. Uh, even the 2000s with Harry Potter 3, The Prisoner of Azkaban, that werewolf looked ridiculous. It's so hard to make a good looking werewolf for some reason yeah. on cinema. Lon Chaney Jr. running the around. Transformation like, the transformation be, is yeah. always supposed to be very dramatic and it never looks good. And him just running around and like strangling people when he has claws and teeth and is supposed to be a, a werewolf. Not exactly the scariest thing. I, I want to go back to something that you were talking about and that the fact that a lot of these older movies, the acting is just so over the top and broad. And it's not to say that for then it was considered overacting. It's just it's. Speaking of the transformation, maybe not being yes. so smooth, yes. because you're taking these stage actors where that's the type of acting that they, out of necessity, had to portray is because they're playing to the back row, so to speak, because they need to make sure that everybody in the theater can hear them. And so that's why you have these big, over-the-top, loud performances that nobody really had the sense to say, you know what? We can hear you. Let's tone it down a little bit, right? Let's make it more intimate. You know, just imagine that you're playing for an audience of one and you'll get it, right? Yeah, and, and we got there eventually. Lon Chaney Jr., one of those staples of – yeah, yeah. He's Lon Chaney Jr. because his dad, Lon Chaney Sr., was like – even older and ingrained in that stage production. He was in some of like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, like the the earlier right, yeah. ends of the Universal Monsters. Uh, so we do start to see this transition with the, the next generation always does something a little bit different. The next generation of monsters was the Hammer Horror Monsters, and what they gave us was color. The first scene of the new Dracula with Peter Cushing and, and Christopher Lee there was bright red blood that we got to see on screen for oh the my first goodness. time. And of course, horror movies would eventually... Where are the censors, Cole? <laughs> they, they would eventually use blood to, to much more effect than just what we see here. This is still very tame uh, compared to the horror of today, but it's there and it, it's kind of a monumental moment. And also we start establishing the rules of Dracula. You think of him being a creature of the night and the, the sun destroys him. That wasn't really a part of the Dracula lore until the Hammer Horror version where the final scene is the sun coming up, him disintegrating into dust, and we get a last shot on his ring just sitting there 
in a in a pile of the, what he once was. And that's the final scene. That's the chilling scene of Dracula. Let me ask you a question because you obviously have more experience with these older horror films than I do. We know that there were certain tricks that were employed in the making of Psycho, for instance, to show black and white blood on screen. Hershey syrup instead of Hershey syrup. <laughs> right. So that's, to my mind, that's the only instance of blood in black and white that I really can remember. Are there other instances where they employed that, where it was effective, or did they just shy away from it because... You wouldn't really be able to tell it was blood because it was black and white. Yeah, let's go ahead and put horror into the context of the rest of cinema because in 1939, The Wizard of Oz launched us into a world of Technicolor. And The Wicked Witch deserves at least a one little mention on a show about horror. And does she hold up? Because she's still terrifying. And that entire movie is still a classic today. I still love watching it. And so you think 1939 was the first time that we got color. And we were still making black and white horror movies into the 60s, 1960 with Psycho, like you mentioned into 1968 with Night of the Living Dead. They got to skirt around the censors because it's a pretty graphic movie. They, oh, yeah. They're eating, I mean, they're eating meat, but it's supposed <laughs> to be human meat. But they're, they're like chomping into stuff. Uh, again, kind of tame compared to what we see even on basic cable with The Walking Dead nowadays. Sure. But for the time, it was dramatic and they got to get around it because it was black and white. I mean, zombies were born on the silver screen. There are other tales of like sort of zombies. Vincent Price with Last Man on Earth, it's kind of a zombie story because, you know, numbers are dwindling and he's the only one left and it's a virus sure. that kind of causes it all. But they are specifically vampires. Like it's stake through the heart, garlic scares them away, mirrors scare them away, vampires. It wasn't until George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead that we got zombies and then the the living dead franchise kind of branches off because he and his writer had a, a little uh misunderstanding over rights and huh. so george a romero starts making like dawn of the dead day of the dead uh and then his his partner makes return of the living dead he keeps that living dead name sure. uh and return of the living dead is a whole different kind of zombie which is where we get the the idea of them going after brains that in 1985 was the first time that kind of enters our cultural lexicon talk about a movie not holding up the outfits at the beginning of return of the living dead if by very own. very mid 80s can you imagine uh i mean maybe the scarecrow was a zombie because he kept singing if i only had a brain brains. that's what the zombies want and brains. i guarantee you you and i could google and find probably countless articles of the evolution of zombies in film, right? And you already kind of gave a little mini class on oh, already sure. Even going back Dr. Caligari. Voodoo and, kind of sure. like reanimating the dead was around as well. Um, yeah. yeah. White zombie, those kind of things. Yeah. I know we've kind of spent some time flashing forward. I kind of want to go back and flash backward a little bit to talk about some of the other elements in horror movies that still hold up today. Mm -hmm. You know, because, yeah, yeah. You could really easily trash a movie by saying, well, the effects don't hold up, you know, <laughs> and you think of King Kong with this claymation uh, monster, this giant ape. And you think of some of the other films from that era that, yeah, the effects may not hold up. But I think one of the reasons people continue to go back to King Kong, for instance, is because they relate to King Kong. They care about the characters. They relate to the damsel in distress, right? And you even kind of hate the people that are around those two characters that are 
pulling them this way and that. And so when a movie, no matter what the effects are and how dated they might seem, if they can give you characters that you care about, that's really what I am more interested in is the character development, the script, and whether or not it has a good story to it. Angela Lansbury taught me that Beauty and the Beast is a tale as old as time. And so when it's <laughs> beauty that kills the beast at the end of King Kong, we latch on to it. Even, oh, that's a great line. Even Caligari, um, as kind of this night walker that doesn't have a will of his own, when he's commanded to go kill the beautiful young lady, he stops and he can't and he kind of picks her up in what is now a very iconic in monster movie like monster carrying the gal wearing an all-white dress kind of a scene. That even dates back to the 1920s, Kevin and Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about jump scares, because jump scares were certainly being used in these older films, but they're also more effective, in my opinion, scares, where it's more setting up an atmosphere, a spooky atmosphere. And to me, silence can be creepier than anything else, unless you're Bernard Herrmann and you're creating some of the greatest suspense horror soundtracks of all time, which Music we can talk about. But let's talk about jump scares and let's talk about atmosphere and silence and what is more effective for you and what has held up over the years for you. Yeah. And so, again, talking about what holds up uh, not showing things and getting back to the graphics the best of the 50s, 60s, and 70s horror movies are the ones that aren't necessarily trying to push the envelope for what they can show because then we always get better at what you can show. And so the ones that, that I still remember, like Psycho, are the ones that create an environment and aren't trying to like make blood splatter the, the, the cool new thing because we always get better at it. If you establish your story and you just tell a simple, creepy, suspenseful tale then it has a little bit more staying power. I'm very grateful for every single technological innovation, everything that looks so bad now. We wouldn't have what looks good now if they didn't try new things then. But the ones that kind of get marked in history are the ones that scare you with what they just don't show you. Psycho is unique in that I feel like the jump scares and the build-up scares are equally scary. Um, they're both effective for me. So everything from the shower scene, obviously, because mm-hmm. that was, was incredibly shocking, not only because of are we seeing nudity, are we not seeing nudity, but also because, oh, I wasn't expecting that to happen, right? And the scene where uh, where Vera Miles' character turns around the cadaver and she realizes that it's Norman Bates's mother's corpse sitting there, the swinging light back and forth. But then again, the scariest part of for me of that is you hear the footsteps coming down the stairs yes. as she's freaking out. Yes. Terrifying. So those are some of the more jumpy scares in that film that really hold up for me. But what is ultimately scariest for me are just the dia- the dialogue between characters. The scene in his uh, parlor where you have all the taxidermy hanging up on the walls and she suggests, you know, maybe with good intentions that maybe it's time for Norman to put his mother in some place, a Mm -hmm. home, right? She can't even say the words. 
and you can and see Anthony him. Perkins makes that switch. It is his acting that really brings this out of 1960 and makes it hold up so well because you watch other movies from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the acting still feels dated in a way. Anthony Perkins' portrayal of Norman Bates is truly timeless, the way that he can seem innocent one moment and then actually crazy and able to commit these murders in the next. Oh, that is my favorite scary movie of all time. It should be noted. And as is mine. Really? This is fantastic. With so many things that we disagree on, Cole, this is something that we really agree on. And before we before we take a break... I mean, and, this is the high point. We're never going to agree on anything else in the history right. of screen cleaning, so we should quit while we're Psycho ahead. <laughs> is the gold standard for horror. Not, not just old horror, but horror in general. Still holds up. It's still, I think, the scariest movie of today even have you seen psycho 2 3 the tv movie i the have TV show? seen all of them okay. yes yes psycho 2 starts off um has with, a promising premise yeah with the shower scene and i thought that we were gonna like zoom in on the blood and it would slowly turn to red i thought that was because they're gonna turn it to color eventually right. i thought that might have been a, a bit of a better way to start but psycho 2 doesn't get uh, quite enough credit i think it's pretty good they should have had you as a consultant on the film Cole. the ending is just I would have changed the entire ending, though, of Psycho 2. That's think, got a problem. People think, complain about the end of Psycho 1, the end of Psycho 2, much, much worse. I I actually kind of think in some ways it works. His mom's not his mom. Well, okay. Um, but I want to ask, before we go to break, okay. I want to ask you, of all these monsters, of all of these different types of scares, what plays and eats away at your personal fears the most of all of all these monsters which one in real life would terrify you if they actually existed at the heart of it i'm still a little kid that's afraid of the dark we had Mm. a lot of nightlights around my house and so it's not a specific monster and, and maybe it really is the invisible man where you can't see what's happening you can't see the terror that's around the corner but it's when a horror movie takes that moment and the protagonist doesn't know what's coming yet. We haven't seen the monster yet. And so it's just that dark foreboding where you know something's coming. And even if it doesn't, even if it's going to be like a trick jump scare that they, they do sometimes, that moment before anything happens can still take a chill down my spine. Oh, yeah. I You know, I'm taking a look at this list too, and I'm thinking, I think the fact if there were some invisible being out there watching me that could actually harm me. And I think uh, maybe the 2020 iteration of this film has something to do with why I might be terrified of an invisible person lurking, trying to do me harm. Very good remake. Yes. uh, I think that I think I'm on the same page as you, Cole. That would be terrifying. What we don't see is often so much more terrifying than what we do see. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the era of horror where they showed us it all. Uh, (laughs) We get into the slashers and and some of the proto-slashers at the beginning, uh, continuing our history of horror and examining, do these old horrors still scare us? Do they hold up here on Scream? Ah! Cleaning. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say... Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly.
John Carpenter. That is the theme to the slasher that started it all, even though we're going to talk about a couple slashers that came before it, Halloween. And, I mean, I think the fact that it took on the name and the feel and the the environment of fall and Halloween helped it stick around. And then, of course, it's the, the 13 or so sequels that we've got now since then that also keep it in the lexicon. But Michael Myers, he's the guy. Can we just, before we dive any deeper into this, I, I think it's worth talking about how this franchise was actually going to veer off into anthology territory. Oh, I'm willing to talk about that to anyone <laughs> that will listen and not just run away when I start it. Because Halloween 1 and 2 were great, and they're the best ones of the batch. And then Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I'm going to remain silent because I've seen 1 and 2... I've seen bits and pieces of three. Uh, I really don't like Halloween 2 like you do, but I understand why people do, in a weird roundabout way, do like Halloween 3. I love it, because, and I love the idea of you set uh, an anthology up at Halloween time, tell a different scary story every time. Halloween 3 itself is just another 80s horror movie where they pick up... I mean, it's it's about these, like, space robots that tap into Stonehenge and they're Irish and they're counting down and they're trying to insert the brains of children with, like, worms through a TV commercial. Bonkers! It's, it's interesting. It's It's got its own thing and it certainly does not have Michael Myers and it's weird. But I love the idea of it, maybe more than the movie itself, that we could have gotten this... this franchise of different stuff every time especially when friday the 13th was so dominating the idea of every year we churn out the same exact movie we have jason he's got a hockey mask he's gonna kill some teenagers over at camp crystal lake like michael myers didn't need to do that you didn't need to like copy him halloween because friday the 13th was making more money every year and that's probably just what they ended up chasing was the money not to digress but we could have a whole other argument on whether anthologies hold up because I've heard it said that a horror anthology is only as good as its weakest segment. But I think that helps it hold up more because in time we can just remember it for the one good segment. I mean, what's your favorite of the Twilight Zone movie? Of the Twilight Zone movie? Absolutely the George Miller directed Nightmare at, at uh, 20,000, however many thousand feet, feet it up is in the air. It's with the ho- John Lithgow. And the William Shatner like in the plane, right? Yes, but it's John Lithgow who is even better than William Shatner. Gotcha. Which, you know, depending on who you are, may not be surprising. (laughs) But yeah, okay. So before we were talking about films from the beginning of film itself to the 60s, and now we're going to kind of go from the 70s to the year 2000. Yeah, because there's still some things that they were doing in 90s horror that seem really dated to us today. But let's go back to the 70s. And the birth of the slasher genre. Halloween gets a lot of credit because it was probably the best executed uh, and the one that kind of stuck around. But there were slashers before Halloween. And in fact, if you just define a slasher as madman with a knife killing folks. Go to Alfred Hitchcock. Psycho, right? That's where it actually started. (laughs) Um, But then in 74, you have two that kind of market in in different directions and in different ways. And it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is much more bloody and violent and visual. And you have Black Christmas, which is more in line with what Halloween would eventually do. When you go back and watch the original, the first Halloween and Black Christmas especially, 
they don't show you a ton. Slashers have gotten a bad rep and honestly an accurate reputation for just having fun with killing folks. Like showing as much as you possibly can before the censors get at you and having blood and guts spew everywhere and, and a bunch of stuff, right? But the first the first Halloween and the first Black Christmas um, really play on that, you know, it's a mystery of who's inside the house. Folks that think of When a Stranger Calls as that classic urban legend of the babysitter who gets a call and the call is coming from inside the house, the first time those exact lines were uttered on film, it was Black Christmas. It was a sorority house. It wasn't mm. a babysitter. But the call was coming from inside the house. And that terrifies you when you've been holding the house as your refuge for this entire movie, trying to protect from what you assume is outside coming in. It was there all along. You know, I'm looking at this list of movies that, that we're going to be talking about here in this segment. And I think for me, I I kind of steer clear of some of those slasher movies because... Again, I think the scarier ones are the ones that suggest and that build up suspense and that create an atmosphere uh, instead of just, you know, relying solely on jump scares. So what plays into my fears, Cole, and I, I think it's I think I've mentioned this to you before, how I'm surprised I don't like zombie movies very much because I like this idea of. Something is taking over all these people and nobody believes the main character and the numbers start to dwindle. And I think maybe it's just because probably one of my favorite stories in all of the horror genre would be Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 1978's version more so than 56. Yes, but or the any 50s of the version remakes. has its virtues as well because mm-hmm. what they do really well is – they create an atmosphere and they use silence and they use paranoia. These are all things that I think really feed into or really uh, lend itself well to a good scary movie. So what makes Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 70s such a great movie, there are some things that shock you. There are certainly some jump scares. But what happens is you get this cast of characters that you really care about. And so it's devastating when they start to drop off one at a time. Let it be known that Invasion of the Body Snatchers is about this, these extraterrestrial pod people, pod people, these these pod spores that come down from outer space. And while you're asleep, so there's a, a whole other element that we could talk about that here. Nightmare on Elm Street really cornered the market on. <laughs> right. But while you're asleep, these spores overtake your body. And it creates a perfect clone of you, devoid of all emotion, though. Yes. And so there's lots going on here. So, as I said, these characters that you really come to care about start to dwindle. And it really feeds into that McCarthyism red scare of, is this person a communist? Is this person not a communist? And so you have people pointing the finger at one another and not believing each other. And uh, what... This movie has going for it, if you could say nothing else about it, Cole, this has one of the most terrifying endings of any horror movie that I can think of. And the reason is not only because of the final moment, but because they draw out the suspense for several minutes. Right, Cole? And I wanted to mention this earlier, but one thing that Alfred Hitchcock uses as an example is – Imagine you've got the scene where there's these group of people sitting at a table 
and there's a bomb. Under, the audience knows there's a bomb underneath the table that's going to go off in two minutes. He's like, isn't it more suspenseful if they know that it's going to go off in 10 minutes? Like, why wouldn't you draw out that suspense and make the audience be more anxious and terrified that something is going to happen and they know it's going to happen, right? And that's Shakespearean dramatic irony that you're talking about Mm -hmm. where the audience is clued into something that the characters don't know, right? Mm -hmm. And, And the cool thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers ending is it invites us as the audience into that question for a moment. Is he a pod person? What is going on? And then it finally pays off in a huge way. One of the great scenes in the first Halloween, I think one of the best scenes in horror ever, is when Jamie Lee Curtis thinks that she has won. and She's in the foreground with oh, us. Yeah. And she's just kind of panting. And she's been through this ordeal. And she's finally beaten Michael Myers. And he just, rigid as a board, sits up in the background. And we see it. But she doesn't know it yet. And he comes slowly ambling towards her. And we're tense for her. That's scary. So you you talk about the McCarthyism then of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers concept. And that worked really well in the 50s. And then it's professor, you know, author, director, writer Leonard Nimoy in the in the yeah, 70s version. Yeah, yeah. That kind of represents academia and people's fears that like – that that can't be trusted anymore and that we get into the 70s because all these parents are sending their kids off to college and they're coming back liberals and that's terrifying. <laughs> and it kind of opens up the idea of what scares us at what time. And in the 1970s, there was this huge push of religious horror that we just don't see anymore because as a society – folks have gotten less religious. The The idea of hell and fire and brimstone and the spawn of Satan doesn't scare as many folks in 2020 as it did in the 70s. But in the 70s, we got the exorcist and the omen and, and the classics of that part of the genre. And again, we came into this segment with a really creepy soundtrack from Halloween, right? <laughs> That was penned by John Carpenter, also the director. John Carpenter's a man. He did it all. He was a jack of all. He still is kind of a jack of all yep, trades, yep. right? Um, but I, you mentioned The Omen, and I think the scariest part of that movie for me, again, is the music. And this was – the soundtrack for this movie was done by Jerry Goldsmith, who was nominated for an Academy Award for his soundtrack for The Omen. Actually, he did win – in 1976 for The Omen. And uh, I don't want to say too much more about this movie, but again, you've got that formula where you've got somebody that's trying to convince other people that there's this thing going on and you better believe me before it's too late for you. And it's one of those movies where by the time people are starting to catch on, that's when they happen to... Exit the it's movie very quickly. It's too late. Yeah, it's too late. The Academy doesn't recognize horror very often, which is part of the reason that I kind of got into the genre, too. It feels like you're kind of an outsider to, to film when you get into, like, horror and sci-fi and, and the genre flicks, right? But there are a few movies that have been recognized and nominated for Best Picture, Exorcist being one of them that I mentioned. And then a couple years later in 1975, a movie that we've mentioned maybe once or twice on the show before also features a pretty decent soundtrack, um, you know, shows less than it, you know, builds up the tension for it's Jaws. I'm talking about Jaws. Yeah, absolutely. This this is one where I go back and forth. Is Psycho my favorite scary movie or is Jaws my favorite scary movie? And again, 
we're, we're asking the question, does old horror hold up? There are certainly elements of this film that do not hold up over all these years. Bruce the shark. Even shortly after the movie came out, I'm sure the shark looked fake and not scary. The reason we don't see a lot of the shark is because they knew at the time of filming that the shark did not look that scary. So it was a happy accident that the shark did not work very well because they ended up going in a completely different direction and creating, again, this atmosphere where you don't see the shark. And so, again, it's left up to us to imagine it. And this... More than any of these other films I think we could talk about, Cole, probably plays on probably a universal fear that most of us have. What is leaking? What is lurking in the water? I guess in some cases leaking in the water, too. Uh, (laughs) But what is lurking there in the water that we just can't see? And they did such an amazing job with just letting us fill in the blanks. And the music is amazing. And the script is fantastic because, again, in my opinion, the scariest scene of the movie, not the opening scene with uh, the swimmer going out and getting chomped up, although certainly terrifying because you don't see the shark. You just see this woman fighting for her life. But it's the scene that comes later on as they're kind of taking a break from the jump scares And they're just having a conversation, playing some drinking games, singing some drinking songs. And then it gets a little more somber as they're comparing Scars and Quint, the hardened... Hardened sea Sea captain captain. who's been hired, the hired hand, to kill the shark, talks about his experience on the USS Indianapolis. And uh, let's just say it was made today. It would have gone into like a flashback and they would have shown us his. I'm so glad they did. And so glad they did. No, we just have a steady cam on these three guys sitting around going from laughing and having fun into a serious and then terrifying conversation about what a shark really can do for that reason and for the music and for everything else, minus the shark mechanical shark. This movie, of course, still holds up, and it still terrifies me to this day. Jaws does something, and you mentioned that first shot. I think as we go through the history of horror, we kind of have to examine how the filmmaking of horror has evolved, too, because where we're put as the audience has changed and evolved in ways in horror that it wasn't in other genres Black Christmas first, Jaws shortly thereafter, and then Halloween all start off with us in the point of view of the monster. And that is so revolutionary. And before they had like a a steady cam to be able to follow someone, horror was just inventing new ways to take the camera into the story. And they had to like jerry rig this like giant apparatus on top of someone because in the opening of Black Christmas, he's like climbing a lattice to like sneak into the sorority house. Can you climb and, a lattice? Would that support somebody's weight? I mean, movies have told us that they can th- in every I single I mean, the genre. same thing with like hanging <laughs> off of the gutter of the house. And I'm thinking, man, who installed that gutter? That's my impressive. Gutter, yeah, I would fall <laughs> apart immediately. I feel like my gutter falls apart under the weight of Halloween, le- like fall leaves half the time. And why are there never any leaves in movie gutters come on they're just good at cleaning their gutters nobody cleans their gutters let's be honest anyway someone cleans i digress the movie gutters <laughs> but the the camera work and the way horror has just changed the way all movies are shot is sometimes overlooked because it's like i said not a really 
appreciated genre by movie people. You know, the the other Academy Award nominees that even like touch on the horror genre, uh, 1999's The Sixth Sense by M. Night Shyamalan, and then you have Get Out, kind of Black Swan. Wikipedia includes it in there. I don't know if it's but that's like beyond really 2000, horror. Cole. That's beyond 2000. But now we're talking about two new. So yeah, going back to like just that original idea of inventing new ways to take the camera into the world with you. But I will say the Academy has a rich history of rewarding actors that have either been in a horror movie or who have had a scary performance. So can we fast forward through the entirety of Slashers? Just let it be known that Texas Chainsaw had a bunch of sequels. Halloween had a bunch of sequels. Friday the 13th had a bunch of sequels. Uh, Child's Play had a bunch of sequels. Nightmare on Elm Street had a bunch of sequels. And then we get to 1991 with The Silence of the Lambs. That's right. Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter, with only 16 minutes of screen time, walks away with the Best Actor Oscar. Not even supporting. He's like the lead guy. Right. 16 minutes. That's how much of a commanding presence he was in that film that he terrified everybody, probably more than the main storyline of Buffalo Bill and Clarence. Uh, not Clarence, Clarice, Clarice, <laughs> trying to catch Buffalo Bill. Right. Um, you've got you've got misery with Kathy Bates, probably the best, one of the if not the best Stephen King horror adaptations. Right. We haven't talked about Stephen King yet. <laughs> right. And uh, she walks away with best actress again. There. This plays upon our fears of. I mean. I I don't know what it's like to be a celebrity, but imagine you were a celebrity and you were being stalked by somebody or how your biggest fan could also be your worst nightmare. And that's certainly the case in the movie Misery. M. Night Shyamalan's success by being nominated with The Sixth Sense at 1999, and we kind of put our, our line there at 99 and 2000 when we're talking about does old horror hold up? And The Sixth Sense certainly holds up. It's surprising that it's even able to hold up on a second viewing because it's so reliant on that twist ending. It's a testament to it as a movie that you can watch it time and time and again. A testament that cannot be said for any other of M. Night Shyamalan's movies because they really, it's that success that kind of led to him taking more and more control and not really being able to capture that early success again. 1999 was also a, a banner year for horror in that we had a couple like remakes of of old classics. Uh, 90s horror was its own kind of feel and genre with a lot of humor. But talking about taking the camera in places it's never been before, the Blair Witch Project also comes out in 99. And it's hard to explain to folks nowadays how much we all thought that it was actually real back then. I remember being in the movie theater at uh, the Block of Orange in Orange, California. Gotcha. And sitting probably in one of the first few rows because the entire theater, every single seat was taken up by a screaming fan. You know, I think I think people, once they got to the end of the movie, they're like, oh, that's it? But the marketing and the buildup and the all of the rumors surrounding it are all things that went into uh, – and because of because of the Blair Witch Project, we have all these other found, found footage, footage movies. Yeah. So, but would you say 
Cole, that The Blair Witch Project is a movie that holds up for some of those reasons. I still like it, but every time I've tried to show it to someone, especially nowadays that didn't watch it back then, it is very obvious to me that it does not hold up. I was trying to show it to a buddy last <laughs> October. I, I watch a horror movie every day in October, and sometimes I invite my friends with me. Uh, last October, I watched The Sixth Sense Oh, sorry, The Blair Witch Project with two people that had never seen it before and one fell asleep halfway through. And I just mm. it became so apparent to me how much it relies on just these teenagers screaming at the camera and nothing really happening and the ending kind of being disappointing. Like there's there's a point uh, there's like a cross in the Rubicon moment where you got to show us something, right? Showing less is normally the formula to have a horror that holds up better but we don't get anything in the Blair Witch Project. And eventually it just kind of becomes boring and people screaming at each other trying to find the map. Where's the map? Where are we going? We're lost. Map! This movie, Cole, is one of the most profitable movies ever made. How much do you think it made? Er, Well, I mean, the first question we should answer is how much do you think it cost? And it's about a nickel and a half. It was between $200,000 and $500,000 was how much it was made for. Budget. Okay, so it made... Tens of millions. Uh, $248 million, Cole. That's a decent profit. One of the most profitable movies ever made. And that's why we kept getting found footage movies afterwards. Things like Paranormal Activity into the 2000s have everything. We have the Blair Witch Project to blame for that wave of horror that is just cheap to make and makes some money. So, Cole, if I'm if I'm honest with myself, as I take a look at the films on this list compared to the films from the beginning of film itself to the 60s, I've got to say as a whole, I think the and it's not a surprise, but the latter films to me hold up better than the former films. Absolutely. Yeah, and and we kind of skipped over. There was an era of rebooting some of the old classics. You know, the blob doesn't seem like a very scary monster when it's the 50s version. But in 88, they found a way to make the blob genuinely scary with effects that work. You know, it's it's as we as we progressed and as graphics got a little bit better, the scares came a little bit easier and they hold up even better today. We've had a wonderful time talking about do old horror movies hold up and when we return we not we not only want to answer that question we want to give you some of the honorable mentions some movies that we weren't able to talk about in this discussion but then we also just as we always do want to do a little panning for good that's up next here on screen cleaning we're here jeffrey that's right scream cleaning Ah! On BYU Radio. Oh, I'm so excited to scream. We only get to do it once a year, Cole. But we do it a lot that one time a year. (laughs) That, of course, is a clip from Poltergeist, one of the many movies that was not a part of our earlier discussion, but certainly worth mentioning. Does it hold up? Uh, Yes. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. There's also The Fly, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Eh. Freaks, The Haunting, The Birds. Yeah. Uh, Does it? Rear Window. Yes. Yes. Rebecca Yes, the thing. There's like three different Rebecca's, including That's a true. new one that Jeffrey reviewed on the show just last week. Check out the podcast. The thing from another world. Yes. Also, the no. thing. John Carpenter. Yes. Poltergeist. The witches. Yes. And the 2020 version. Also, yes. <laughs> so now we need to answer Cole in a general sense. 
do old movies hold up? And I'm going to ask you first what you think. Yes, it depends. I mean, Aha. I, I will sit on the fence firmly planted here because I spend my entire month of October watching horror movies and they're not all 2020 releases. I've got to watch some old ones. This year I watched some more really old ones than I normally do. And I was pleasantly surprised more than I was disappointed. Yes, it holds up. Some of them don't, obviously. But yes, if you love horror, yes, the answer is yes. Okay. I am also going to say in a general way, yes, old horror movies hold up. I do have a bit of a qualifier, though. Obviously, some of the older black and white universal monster horror movies are pretty going to be pretty low on the totem pole as far or low on the queue that I have in my mind of mm-hmm. horror movies that I need to watch because they just don't do it for me. Right, Cole? Um, however, I'm also of the mindset that I don't feel like filmmakers make scary movies like they used to. I really don't. I'm starting to see the occasional movie here and there that is of our modern age that is scary. The Invisible Man being chief among an example of those. But for the most part, I feel like movies today rely too heavily on CGI and jump scares to the point where I would say that, yes, old movies do hold up because the scariest movies that I've seen were from the 60s and the 70s. And those older movies were a simpler time in horror movies. Yeah, and it's tough to compare the eras because what scares us and what can scare us just changes. It's tough to go back and look at the serious slashers of the 70s and 80s after you've seen Scream in the 90s and Final Destination in the 2000s because they make so much fun of those old slashers. So do they hold up as much with all of that extra context? I still say yes. Okay. Well, before we do a little panning for good, I think, Cole, it's time for you to put in another pitch for one of our big, big, big shows that is coming up very soon. If horror's got you down and you need a nice light pick-me-up after the spooky month, we're going to be talking about sitcoms. Early in the pandemic, maybe you didn't have anything to watch and you sat down and binged through The Office like so many of us. Well, if it's your favorite sitcom, go to BYURadio.org. Uh, the Screen Cleaning Podcast. Click on the description in the podcast and go vote for your favorite sitcom. We're going to do a sitcom bracket in the second week of November, and uh, we can't we can't wait. We got 16 of the best from all eras, right? Do old sitcoms hold up? We're about to find out. And enter for a chance to win a surprise. A surprise prize, a surprise. Cole. Yep. <laughs> all right. Well, even on Screen Cleaning... <laughs> We would be remiss in our duties as hosts of the show if we did not do a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. We focused a lot on real horror today, but there's a whole different genre arm of the Halloween spectacle, which is the nice, light, fun fall tale that happens to have witches or wizards and warlocks and monsters. The Halloween movie. The Halloween movie, as opposed to Halloween the movie, at which Hocus Pocus is at the forefront of that that vanguard. The, the, the Halloween movie, I think, is Hocus Pocus. I think that it holds up, although some might argue, and maybe it is my nostalgia that makes it think that it holds up. 
But the folks on Rotten Tomatoes certainly don't think it holds up, or they didn't think that it was good in 93 in the first place, because it holds a 37% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a sham. One of the greatest shams on the entire website. And the folks at Rotten Tomatoes know that because they have started a new podcast called Is Rotten Tomatoes Wrong, where they go back and look at some of these critic and audience discrepancies on their site and talk extensively about that movie. And did the critics get it wrong at the time? Are we just looking through rose-colored glasses now? Uh, and Hocus Pocus is one of their episodes. I think there's seven or so episodes in. It's a fairly new podcast if you want to jump on and you love movies. Okay, so you clearly think that they're wrong, Cole. Yes. Okay. Well, you're excited because apparently they're making a sequel for Hocus Pocus, right? Hocus Pocus 2 has sort of been confirmed. We're pretty sure that Bette Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker and everyone's coming back. That's exciting. Mm. That's exciting. But that's going to do it for this episode of Scream Cleaning. Ah! We'll be back next week to cleanse ourselves of all of these Halloween discussions as we get into the month of November. And we are super excited to get to the bracket in the middle of November. We hope you play along and have a good time. We hope you've had a great time here today on Scream Cleaning. Ah. And we'll be back next week with Screen Cleaning, No Scream Required, their goal. I guess. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissing. And we'll see you then. Bye.